Hi, I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 35 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. On today's show, we sit down with Lion Tree CEO Arie Borkoff and Tad Smith, the CEO of Sotheby's. Listen in as we learn about his transition from running Madison Square Garden to heading up the legendary auction house, the digitization of the art and luxury goods market, and his long-standing role as an adjunct professor at NYU Stern School of Business. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm sitting here for our latest Kindred Cast podcast with Tad Smith, who is currently the president and CEO of Sotheby's, the global auction house. The company is the world's fourth oldest auction house in continuous operation, having been established in London in 1744. Sotheby's now has locations in 90 cities in 40 countries, which I'm sure Tad has been to all of them and traveling around the world, and is the oldest company traded on the New York Stock Exchange. I've known Tad for many years, including when he was president and CEO of MSG, the Madison Square Garden, where he brought over 25 years of media experience to the company, helping double the garden's net profits in in the year that he was CEO. And before that, he was actually running Cablevision's local media practice when he actually first came to Liontree for a brainstorming session. So I'd like to think that we're, we're ahead of the curve talking to you about where things were going. In addition to his day job, Tad is also an adjunct professor at NYU Stern School of Business, where he teaches a popular class on strategy and finance for media, entertainment, and technology. And I actually looked up in your bio that at one point you were chief of staff to the Taxi and Limousine Commission. Sure. Which I'd love to hear more about Under Mayor Koch. Wow. That's amazing. Well, thanks for being here. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I was thinking... I'll pay you a dollar if you can name the other few auction houses that are older than Sotheby's. Um, Maybe I may give you 10 bucks for that, actually. I think you just won yourself $10. I think I did. They're all Swedish. <laughs> I don't even think you could pronounce the names, actually. Tell me, can you? No, I literally can't. <laughs> I have no incredible. idea. Yeah, no, Sweden. I mean, it's Sweden. I mean, they had these auction houses a million years before the Brits did. And so Sotheby's is the first large one, 1744. Was that what attracted you to Sotheby's? The, uh, the no, I didn't know stature? it until, like you, I checked Wikipedia sometime years later. <laughs> so, What does attract Tad Smith, media executive, to the art world and running Sotheby's? First of all, I've, all my life I've been in creative businesses. And so the intersection of business and commerce has been really interesting to me. And the art part of the business, but it's not just art, it's jewelry, it's art, it's cars, it's wine, the sale of luxury products, the evolution of technology and that, all of that just, and the global nature of the business all struck me as really very exciting and interesting. And it has been. Yeah. And how long has it been so far? Three years. I started March 31, 2015. And the three years you've been there so far, how much have you traveled? Oh, I think about a million miles just last week, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. I came into the job with literally millions of miles of frequent flyer miles. I mean, accumulate over time because I've sort of used them since and given them away. But I think I'm traveling now as much as I have in my entire life, which is hard to believe given that I've done stints in London where I commuted to New York and Hong Kong on the half week was in McKinsey in Los Angeles, commuting back and forth between New York. It's more now than it's ever been. Also, it's short stints. It's, hey, go to Hong Kong for a day. Right. I'm sure that's fun. I actually track my travel pretty meticulously. And last year, I traveled around the world in miles, uh, seven and a half times around. 
Although this year, I that's found that's only that, two twenty though, right? Two hundred thirty thousand. Correct. So this year, I'm pacing well below last year. Good. That's a huge. That's a yeah. uh, your body appreciates it. Yeah, my body, my family, <laughs> your family particularly, your body, your, your doctor, all of them. <laughs> they all appreciate that. Exactly. But most of the business for Sotheby's is outside the U.S. Is that right? Well, yes. Technically, a majority of the business is outside the U.S. But it's it's hard to count because what happens is we source from all over the world and then we sell all over the world. Right. So in your last three years or the last three years mm-hmm. so far at Sotheby's, how do you rank yourself in terms of what your milestones have been? What have been your accomplishments? Well, we set out to do four things. The first was to develop and implement a compelling growth strategy. I think we've made good progress on that. The second was to embrace technology and accelerate the innovation. I think we've done a pretty good job on that, too. But I would say on that one, we've got more work to do. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. The third one was to allocate capital very well. I think we've done extraordinarily well on that. And fourth, we've built a phenomenal team. And the the fourth priority was to build a team that could sustain the other three. And I think we've made superb progress on that. Overall, I described in the earnings call, you know, we're sort of in mile seven of a marathon, but we are at very good speed and actually picking up. And I think we probably moved up to about mile nine. We're going to get away from the travel metrics in a minute, but you did put together a five-year plan when you first started. Yes. So three years into it, do you feel like you're almost there? No, ironically enough, because what we found, the team and I, the longer we're here, the more innovative growth options become available. It's almost as the closer you get to the horizon, the more islands you see at some level. And that's really what we're seeing. Everywhere we look, we see growth options that were not visible to us initially. And so our ambition has gone up. Also, as the team has changed, the ambition has gone up. It's a little bit like a receding destination. Yeah. Well, there are some similarities that I've uncovered just in studying your tenure so far at Sotheby's uh, versus our time together when you were in the media industry. And in some ways you still are. A lot of it has to do with a, a core business that is in transition in the art business and the auction business, and then a digital business or a technology business that is obviously in growth mode that ultimately will make up for that. So how do you think about that shift in, in the business model and how's the digital progress? Well, that's a, a very, very astute observation. The digital progress is very strong. Already this year, approximately a quarter of the lots we have sold were sold online. And um, I anticipate that that will continue to grow robustly over time. Secondly, what's really interesting, and unlike many, many other businesses, the key axis of competition here is not actually finding demand. There's demand everywhere. It's actually getting access to supply. One of the things that I think is a real game changer is the ability to use the internet and machine learning to open up supply that heretofore has been trapped on people's walls and people's homes and people's vaults. Explain that a little bit. Well, when you think about the hard part of what we do... It's not finding people to buy good stuff. We can use the internet very effectively. We can use our global sales network very effectively. We can use all of our marketing tools, mainly digital, by the way, video, all of that very effectively to find demand. There's demand with money all over the world to find the right stuff. The trick is finding good stuff that's fresh and that's at an attractive price. If we can find that, we can develop and sustain a really exciting difference in our performance. And you can use AI and machine learning to and help that? We, well, actually, let's take a case for you, Arye. You probably have a whole bunch of things, art, jewelry, wine, whatever it is, at your house that you may have fallen out of love with, don't really think much about, don't really care much about, and it may actually be worth a lot more than you think. And if you think about all the hassle you would have to go through to figure out, gee, how do I turn that into cash? 
it's just a pain. It mm-hmm. really is. It's not easy. So imagine we give you a very simple phone, a very simple app. You, I thought you were going to come to my house and do it. Well, by the way, and we have a company called Viet that will do that. Okay. And we have a company called Sotheby's that will do that. But without all that, just a very simple online way to determine what the value of something is and actually to connect to a potential buyer, that breaks open supply. It's, it's classic disruption. Very affordable, much faster, much lower cost. It's a good thing. And that's what the internet can do for us. I keep going back to the media industry, given um, your background and and what I spend most of my time doing today in in business. And it's a tough transition because typical media businesses have really thrived on scale and audiences and therefore advertising, right, as a baseline for how to monetize that broad audience. And over time, when you go digital, you're really trying to be more targeted Exactly. And trying to figure out what the value proposition is in almost a niche area, but in different components around the world. So it has a component of scale to it, but really you're getting much more precise about your audience and your customer base. Precisely. Are you finding that? Yes, that's exactly. So the scale analogy here is the global dimension of our brand and the fact that we have reach around the world that connects to many buyers. So the brand provides a halo to someone who either may want to consign to us or potentially someone who's talking to one of our salespeople. Oh, Sotheby's, I know that conveys elegance, it conveys quality, it conveys trust, it conveys integrity. That's the scale portion. But the truth is, very much like you said a moment ago, to be able to take a specific painting or a specific bottle of wine and connect it to just that one exact person at the highest possible price point on behalf of our consigner on the other side of the planet, that's a highly focused micro-targeting, micro-sales effort. That uses technology effectively. That uses technology when it's done effectively. And you have a massive head start since 1744, as we talked about, in terms of brand, right? Because I'm assuming that the barriers to entry for a disruptor that you would see like an Uber in the auto industry, for example, very hard to come by because brand really matters in terms of credibility when you're reaching this global audience. That's exactly right. It doesn't mean that we're not able to be disrupted. What it means is that it's difficult. I'll also say it's not a new idea. Over the last 15 years, it was a very interesting article on CNBC the other day that I believe was an interview with Jeff Bezos talking about his original attempt to do a deal with Sotheby's, Mm, oddly enough. Yeah. And um, eBay, of course, bought an auction house. Others have bought auction houses over time uh, in an attempt to either diversify or to break into the business. You much prefer Amazon buy Sotheby's than compete against Sotheby's. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know. I've no comment. Um, The real thing about it is if you can open up supply in a way that differentiates you, you've got a real interesting potential to disrupt. And by the way, you don't have to be, but uh, incumbents have a strong advantage in many ways for what it's worth. So how do you think about companies like Artsy and Padalate who are in the art business, in the commerce business from a new media, so to speak, or technology perspective? Are they gaining traction? Are they gaining share? Full disclosure, we're a minor investor in Artsy. Let me do Artsy first and Paddleade second. In the case of Artsy, what Artsy has brought to me, in my mind, is a real understanding of how data can expand the demand curve around the world to help gallerists and potential sellers of material. And the demand curve is a crucial aspect of it. They also have a very, very interesting taxonomy of the world's creative product, mainly art, that I think provides a lot of value to them and also potentially to their customers. 
And that is an area that I think is really innovative. And I think they do a good job of it. And they're a smart bunch. Paddle 8, which, as you know, is sort of merged with, I think, Auctionata as well. What they've done innovatively is to create a very simple user interface for someone who wants to go buy on auction. And I think they've done that relatively well. They also, I think, more recently have gotten much closer to China, which I think is an interesting angle for them. And so uh, they're interesting. Are they necessarily on our radar screen? Sure they are, because all the folks in the ecosystem are on our radar screen. We're fairly comfortable with our strategy, and we're implementing it. And you think about Christie's much more as a competitor than you do an Artsy or a Padalate, for example? Well, you know, it's interesting. I would distinguish between short-term and long-term. To me, Christie's is a very talented, competent competitor on a deal-by-deal basis, in fact, As I sit here with you, I think we're competing with them in two different places in North America right now, literally today. And every single auction season, we compete with them in many, many ways and facets across many, many different kinds of things. When I look out five or 10 years, they're not the ones I worry about five years from now. They're the ones I worry about next week. Got it. Yeah, you are much more forward-looking in terms of the technology, the digital, the new ways of doing business, and obviously the geographic expansion, I should say. Well, like you, by the way, I've been immersed in media businesses for decades. Mm -hmm. And so you and I both have seen what technological and regulatory disruption will do to a business. And I've seen it many, many times over. Sure, I think we've been in business 275 years, but we know that that can end quickly if we don't stay ahead of the competition. Yeah, as an aside, I took the family to see Hamilton last night. Second time I've seen it, but first time I brought the family. When I think about you, Sotheby's, you've been around as long as our country. Actually, longer. Considerably longer, (laughs) yeah. We were old by the time uh, America was born. Yeah, yeah. Any CEO that uh, oversees... Actually, I think we were 50 when France had its revolution, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. No, 1789, not quite, so... Yeah. Yeah, old is good. Iconic. Yeah, it makes you wise. (laughs) You you substitute memory for wisdom, I guess. Exactly. (laughs) With deplenishing brain cells. You bring the past into the future. Exactly. Um, And relive it. And relive it. That's right. But any CEO that's going through a time of change and growth for their companies has to think about allocating capital wisely. Mm -hmm. I think you went through that in the media industry. Obviously, you have to think about that at Sotheby's. So capital scarce. I ultimately sometimes think the CEO's primary job as part of its, uh, his or her strategy is to allocate capital because it's really an investing platform and you're judged on the results by your shareholders, big and small. So how do you think about deploying capital for where you're going in the future versus what people demand of you today? Wonderful question. In fact, it is probably the single most important question that I and Mike Goss, our chief financial officer, think about with the board on a regular basis. Let me first make a couple of observations about Sotheby's, which is unusual in terms of capital, and then I'll turn to your question more directly. One of the great insights of Sotheby's is that you need actually very, very, very little capital to run the business, meaning it's a business that needs very little equity. In fact, if you looked at sort of the last 20 years of our business profile and you took the EBITDA less the capital spending, there was, and this is all in the public domain, there's only one year where we were actually negative in EBITDA minus CapEx and it was 2009. And it wasn't because of the downturn per se. It was the combination of the downturn and a major renovation project on our building. Wow. If you eliminate the CapEx, EBITDA has been positive for 20 straight years. So one of the things to think about so this is one of the central insights in the last few years is, oh my goodness, we just don't need that much equity 
if we manage liquidity right, we have the right lines of capital in place, because one of the challenges with the business, of course, is it's both seasonal and cyclical. And the cycle has relatively limited visibility. It can sneak up on you pretty fast. But if you're hedging your guarantees, you keep the assets very light. You have as much as possible variability in your cost, just like a private bank or an investment bank. One of the great insights is you don't need much capital. And if you don't need much capital, it means a significant amount of capital above and beyond what you're reinvesting for the business or using to acquire assets can go to repurchase shares. And or investor growth. After investment for growth. Wow. Yeah, even after investment for growth. You can do all the growth. above. Yeah. You can do all of the above and then have some. And so what you see in our balance sheet is significant excess cash above and beyond acquisitions, above and beyond capital spending because we're redoing the building, above and beyond a share repurchase. Still, if you read the earnings call closely, even above and beyond all of that, we still were having excess cash. Helps you sleep at night. It does help us sleep at night. And keeps everyone happy. Yeah. But however, there is a quid pro quo, and this is the point you made, which is there is a balance in thinking through how much we grow, because we could grow significantly faster if we wanted to spend more money and reduce our earnings on uncertain projects that might potentially have huge wins for us, and we could grow significantly slower. It's a balance. So one of the things that we've been trying to do is balance a high return on equity, meaning be very tough on the use of equity and very tough on capital allocation, with substantial investments in projects that we think will take Sotheby's into the next century in a very good way. Any that you'd like to share with us or you're willing to share? Well, sure. I mean, we have, first of all, built new mobile applications. We've opened up the online estimator, which I think I was mentioning or alluding to earlier. Yes. We've bought a small artificial intelligence company called Thread Genius. We've acquired a company called Viet. Obviously, when I first arrived, we bought Art Agency Partners, which in and of itself was an interesting deal. So we've done a fair bit of investing. And moreover, we've added significant resources and capabilities in data engineers. We bought May Moses. Mm -hmm. We've been busy. That's right. And how much do you worry about the cycle turning? Because we are in the, in the late stage of an economic boom. I know you are, uh, you're a lot of things, but you're also a student of the economy and the markets and have lived through cycles before. So we're in a late stage boom, which is, you know, consumer friendly and everyone is happy. But how much do you worry about it turning to negative? And is Sotheby's a leading or lagging indicator of that, given your customer base? Yeah. Let me do the first question first. I worry about the cycle a whole lot. And what it means right now is our guarantee positions are hedged, and we're very careful about not having significant exposed guarantee positions. We certainly are focused on our cost structure and variabilizing it, and we're being exceptionally careful on significant uh, things that we undertake. Why? Because we don't know when. By the way, we're in a healthy market right now. That's an important point. It's also one that's been going on a while, at <laughs> least in the U.S. economy. And uh, we're not sure when it will turn. In terms of the indicators, it's very interesting. Sotheby's operates in a market that is actually not directly dependent on GDP because, again, supply is what drives our business. It's the mindset of the consigners that will actually determine our business. In other words, how are the ultra-high net worths around the world feeling that will determine whether we have supply? So, for example, if they think that an equity shock in China in June or July of 2015 will mean that the auction market will be weak in autumn, then they won't consign. Supply will contract, and you'll see what's set into 2016, a downturn mm -hmm. in the art business. 
um, if they think that even um, while the broader market is obviously even robust. while the broader market was reasonably robust, if they think that the European Union is facing instability, if they think that there's a trade war knocking on the door, if they think any of these things, we're actually very dependent on the mindset of prospective consigners hmm. and very geographic dependent. And geographic dependent. Now, at the moment, one of the things that's very interesting is that China is doing really well. In fact, very strong. This past spring, we had the second highest set of sales in China in our Hong Kong office's history. And that's a really interesting indicator. And it was uh, strongly up over one year ago. The mindset right now in China is strong, positive, very interesting. And I don't recall a time China peaked in 2011. Of course, we had our, our last downturn in 08, 09. We haven't had a downturn in the West since 2008, which means China was significantly smaller and significantly less wealthy 10 years ago than it is today. It will be very interesting with significant demand in China available to buy things and having a downturn in the West should one occur in the next year or two or three years out. I'll be interested to see how that affects the art market. It's possible that the art market could be more resilient. I think it's more likely what would happen is people wouldn't have necessarily confidence based upon a local recession that demand would still be there, although I believe the demand would still be there. But it sounds like, given what you're saying about China, there's no trade war fear in what you're seeing. In terms no, of no, no. I, I think people think that this isn't much to do about is, nothing. Yeah, I mean, fake news. Well, I don't know if it's fake news, but I mean, it's actually real news. I mean, there's a real dialogue going on and they're really discussing NAFTA. We're really discussing China. We're really discussing these are real things happening. It just hasn't punctured into the art market yet. Well, no. And honestly, I'm not sure what market it's punctured into. A little bit the equity markets. They're a little sideways, but even they have sort of rallied. I mean, I guess yesterday they were off a little bit. But it sounds like geographic diversification is important because if you do look at your marketplace, as not a general marketplace, but a regional marketplace or a specific demographic, then having some diversification, like you have, you know, China is now a much bigger presence than you had since the last downturn. That's important to you. So where are you investing geographically where you want to put more dollars to work or more customers to work in different regions? Is the Gulf, for example, the UAE a focus area? So the short answer is wherever there is more money today and particular concentrations of wealth than there was 10 to 15 years ago is where we're focusing. Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley, let's start with that. Southern California, Texas, Chicago, interestingly enough, Florida, certainly the UAE, absolutely the UAE, China for sure, Hong Kong, overseas China, pretty much all of those areas are areas where the wealth has grown dramatically in the last decade. And where there's substantial new pools of money, we have new pools of buyers. Makes sense. And then how about the demographic? Another media industry buzzword. Oh, sorry. Also, let me add, there are areas of South America that are looking brighter today than they were a decade ago. And that's interesting as well. Like Argentina, for example, or Mexico? For example. Yeah. I love Buenos Aires. One of my favorite places in the world. The demographic question is one that constantly you know, irritates and stimulates media strategies because it's all about getting to a younger audience, a millennial demographic, so to speak, for the media industry. Do you face the same challenges in terms of trying to change the age group or the shift or the makeup of your audience to the younger demographic? The short answer is yes, but it's yes plus. Yes, bringing new people in to experience what Sotheby's can offer and sort of buying, discovering and selling items, we absolutely do that. I think we do rather well. However, 
unlike the media business, demographic transition or audiences aging at the top are actually positive for us. Why? Because it generates wealth transfer. Wealth transfer is a key driver of our business. So we love people aging. We love them healthy and we love them happy. What advice would you have for our millennial audience? We obviously have the ageless and the aging in our kindred cast audience. But for the millennials, broadly speaking, what advice do you have for people that are coming into the art world for the first time? Well, whether it's the art world or jewelry or watches, for example, or wine, my view is there is so much information available. Buy what you love. Don't spend more than you can afford and um, enjoy it. And do it at Sotheby's. I definitely do it. Well, we're, it's easy to do business with us. You right. should definitely do business with us. Right. When you buy at Sotheby's, we promise, in fact, we give you insurance that uh, what you're buying is good. So right. you have um, warranties and reps. To step back to a broader lens here, because you've been a professor at NYU now, I think, for 20 years. 19 or 18, yeah. Exactly. Almost 20 Whatever years. it is. Almost 20. Yeah. Close enough. Yeah. What are you teaching people? What are you... Uh... Strategy and finance for entertainment, media, and technology companies. Every year, it's the case method. So think... This will date us, actually. Think paper chase for business school students, <laughs> but in entertainment, media, technology. Yeah. And I've done it since uh, 1998 or 99, as I recall. So it's been really fun at NYU. And what's the current curriculum look like? Well, actually, I do autumn classes and I make up the cases in August and I wait until August because frankly, you and the other sort of big investment bankers and moguls in the media business, you're changing things up so much. I usually wait to the last minute to see what's hot. Well, what's hot now is family controlled companies. Family control companies yeah, are. They're, yeah, they're I guess something. they are. Sure. You know, I've done CBS and Viacom many times in various permutations. I've done pretty much I've done not only all the ones you would think of I've done and the exams are also interesting, but I have all sorts of wonderful little anecdotes. I remember I did an exam once of Google and it was, I think it was $85 a share, whenever it was. And I said, you know, are you a buyer or seller of Google at $85? And most of the kids were not. They were, they were all sellers at 85 Wow. Yeah. Wow, you need more optimism in your yeah. class. And I've had Yahoo when it was the great disruptor, and I've had a case of Yahoo where it was probably less attractive than the New York Times structurally. I mean, <laughs> it's fascinating over time. When you when you look at similar cases for 19 years in a case method, and and by the way, the, the class has been, I mean, I think I have over 1,000 students, over 1,200 students, something like that, because I had 60 or 65 or 70 for years. Have you tackled Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies? No, crypto actually is on my list. I hope no students listen to this because that's a really good exam. Yeah. Any place for crypto or digital currencies in the uh, auction markets? Yes. There are lots of little startups that are chasing this. One is art market could accept crypto for sure. That's uh, interesting. And then the other option is smart contracts. Mm -hmm. And that can provide clarity on authenticity, clarity on title. And if you can link it to the digital record and blockchain to a physical object indelibly or permanently, you've got a nice record for security purposes going forward. So those are positives as well. Makes sense. Do you think you will see a day where I or anyone else could buy some art through Sotheby's with Bitcoin? Well, you know, it's interesting. You can buy right now, you can swap your cryptocurrency into cash and then buy at Sotheby's today. So, sure, yeah. so what you have to think about is why would you want to buy directly for crypto? And then the other thing you need to think about is why would we want to take crypto and be long crypto as opposed to just have you transact through a third party that converts your crypto into cash? We haven't really figured that out yet. We understand technically how it could work. We haven't seen what's the screaming demand to convert crypto directly into art as opposed to going through a cash transfer first. 
Or if you should be agnostic to it, right? And potentially have it at arm's length. Our, our view is it's like another currency. Yeah. Um, so, But one thing we, we're not wild about is taking positions in crypto because that's not our business. And we're also not wild about having additional layers of credit risk when you move from crypto to cash into a piece of art. Got it. So now, the answer is maybe. Yeah, that sounds interesting. So, Tad, in your rear view mirror, you're looking at the media industry and what you left behind and obviously taking... The, the rear view mirror. Well, you know, taking the best of your creative uh, engine and bringing it into for, into play uh, where you are today and where you will be in the future. But um, you've also left behind a pretty tough team on the Knicks. Do I draw any parallels to your leaving MSG when the Knicks have started to really suffer? No, 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 of course not. I am a huge fan of the Knicks. Huge fan of the Rangers, and uh, you know I'm optimistic that they'll uh, do good things in the coming years. Okay, good. We'll have to go to some games together. I'd love that. You've got great seats. Well, you got great seats. No, today, no, I had great seats. <laughs> I don't have great seats. That's for sure. I will take you. I would love that. Tad, thanks for being here. I really thank appreciate you. It's it. really a pleasure to be back at Lion Tree. Good to see you. Are you? You too. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.